Now, this story we have from 2 Kings, it's a great story in many ways, and there's a lot of details that when we take time to consider them and think about them, just really bring out the story more and more. And I can't give you all the details, but there's a few things I want to make sure we understand. And one of the big things you have to realize what's going on in the story is that you have one people. You have the people of God. But at this point in their history, they're divided into two nations, north and south, kind of, if you will. And they're not only divided, there's this sort of tension that they have with one another. And as you read these words, you get the impression that one is sort of a subordinate of another. And you know how that is. One group doesn't always like that. And there's always this this friction that's there. So in the background of this story about these kings and these letters and this military guy going back and forth, there's this idea of a people being divided that you need to realize. Another detail of the story that I think is just so neat, uh, I think we should maybe preach on her, and today is not the good time. We, we should remember that here you have these kings, and you have these prophets, and you have these military heroes, but their story doesn't happen if it wasn't for one little girl. I think we should preach about her, and I think we would call that sermon, Four Men and a Little Lady. But that's another sermon. There's a lot more details like that that you should read about or try to figure out in that story or see it more that, that just brings it out, I think, in, in a deeper way. There's a couple things in particular, though, I want to bring your attention to to make sure you realize going on in the story. And the first is this. According to the writer, as the writer sees it, as the writer is telling the story, God is in control. Now, Naaman might believe that his military skill was okay, and that he was on top of his game. Maybe even his king thought, well, I had the foresight enough to make sure I had the right guy lined up for the job. But in the story, no king, no commander, no nation, or no government is in control. God is in control. Friends, in the history of this world, no king, no commander, no government, or no nation is in control. God is in control. You all with me? First thing I want you to notice. Second thing is this. It's sort of two things together in one. First, you have this, this, this guy, Naaman, who is a military hero, right? He has favor with his king because of his military feats. And, you know, if you're good with, in good with the king, you're usually in good with everybody else. And as, as far as his career goes, Naaman has everything he could want. At this point in his life, he has everything, but there's something about him that lets us know in many ways he has nothing. Naaman has leprosy, and there's no way for us to tell exactly what that means, leprosy. It could mean the, the all-out disease. It could mean uh, mold spores. It, there's no, it's impossible for us to tell what exactly he has that they account as leprosy. But think about this. If you remember, if you are a leper, what is your general position in society in the biblical world? Isolated. You're an outcast. You're rejected. You are, remember, leper colonies. That is where the lepers go. You are unclean. Now, there's another sermon maybe in there as well, because in the biblical world, a leper should be an outcast. Unless, of course, you have friends in high places, right? 
So maybe a sermon on some justice, maybe, or so. But realize that as much as Naaman has, there's a part of him that has nothing. Naaman has this leprosy, and there's this girl that serves his wife who says, man, if you just knew about Elisha, well, he'll take care of you. Back home, oh, he was a prophet, and he'll, he'll heal you quick. So Naaman says, sign me up. And he goes to his king and says, well, can I go see the other king, and can I go over there, you know, tension, north and south, is it okay? king says, go. His king, as powerful as he is, is powerless to help him. Yeah, go over there and see if he'll help you. I'll send a letter, tell him you're coming. I'll send a gift. So he sends these gifts, which is about $80,000 worth of gifts to the other king. And so Naaman comes to see the other king. And the other king, as he, as he reads the letter, we realize that the king, as powerful as he is, is powerless as well. He gets upset. Well, how? Am I God? I love that line. Am I God? Am I supposed to be able to heal this guy? As much as I can do, I can't do that. So here we have two people, maybe three people who are at the top of their game, who are powerful, who have it all, but yet in some way are missing something big. My friends, I'm going to suggest that in many ways that might describe you and I. Today, how appropriate it is that we can celebrate our nation's freedom on a Sunday where we can be together uh, at God's house on God's day where we can say, thank you, God, for what we have here in this nation. And we can go wherever we want to go. We can buy whatever we want to buy. We can not go where we want to go. We can do the things that we want to do. Or we don't have to do the things that we don't want to do. We have a lot of control as it goes that way. But so many of us, in so many ways, just like our friends from the story, have that hole in us, that powerlessness in us, even with so much that we have. And you know the stories. You've known people like it. Maybe it's been part of your experience. We have this hole, and we try to fill the hole as best we can. And so it's the, it's the young person who's Family life is anything but nice. And the only thing that makes sense for that young person is, is to look for the gangs because at least there, there's some type of family. Or it's the spouse who feels like she or he can't control anything anywhere else at the workplace or anywhere. The only thing control I can have is when I get home. And they control that family sometimes in very harmful ways. And of course, the whole, we talk about is where addiction comes in. There's something that we're trying to fill there. Friends, what I'm trying to remind you or suggest to you is that many of us have that hole there, even with so much that we've been gifted with. Y'all with me? What does it mean for you? Keep that in your thought. But what does it mean for you to be a United Methodist? If you ask someone, what does it mean to be Methodist? Someone invariably will ask you, Methodist church? Why do you go to Methodist church? And you'll get answers like, well, what makes United Methodist different? Well, we have these apportionments we've got to pay. Uh, our preachers move every once in a while. Uh, there's John Wesley guy. And there's no real concrete thing that separates us or distinguishes us. 
And I found in my experience, in teaching Sunday schools or having conversation, there are people who have been a part of the Methodist Church their whole life. And I mean that to say a long time. Who won't be able to tell you about Wesley's idea of God's grace. Now, I'm going to share this with you, and for some of you, this may be a reminder. For some of you, it'll be the first time you ever hear it. I'm going to suggest that you write it down, because this, I think, is what distinguishes us, or what we as United Methodists, as Wesleyans, add to the theological conversations, and it's this idea about God's grace. According to John Wesley, in our belief and tradition, God's grace is everywhere. God's grace comes out of God's love. And there are three different kinds of grace that we can see or that we can experience or that we can know about. And the first one we call prevenient grace. It's this grace of God that is working not only in us, but around us and in our world. Pre, before, right? Before we know it, before we care to know it, before we even believe it. This is the grace of God that is working in and around us. Prevenient grace. And then there's a second kind of grace. When you and I get to that point, maybe we've been raised in the church, maybe we haven't, but there comes a point somewhere where that light bulb goes off, right? Oh, I get it. God has done this for me. I have the call to respond to God's love. And in that moment, however that moment looks for you or for anybody else, the the person has the assurance that God's grace then justifies that person, justifies to make right. And that person's belief in God and Christ is all they need to be justified before God. Justifying grace. And most people, they have heard about those kinds of experiences, but it's the third kind of grace that sort of gets lost or gets misunderstood. And the third kind is sanctifying grace. Prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. You see, in Wesley's mind, each of you, your goal in life, my goal as well, is to be made perfect. What are you thinking? (laughs) Nobody's perfect, right? And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes. Wesley never believed that you get to a point where you don't sin. There's not a point where you stop messing up, as it were. The difference is there, be, there can be a point in your life where the power of sin does not have reign over you. Where you get to a point where your will is lined up with the will of God and that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In Wesley's understanding, that is what it means to be perfect. Y'all with me? And Wesley believed that a person could attain that perfection. Your ministers, each one, as they are ordained throughout the years, they're asked several questions by their bishops. Uh, One of the questions we always joke about is, you know, they ask, Are your personal finances in order so as not to embarrass you? And there's always this kind of like, oh, man. All these people who just graduated from seminary and all this, you know. But there's another question there as well. Do you believe in Christian perfection? 
And are you expecting to receive it? If they don't answer yes, then maybe John Wesley's idea is not really for you. But we expect to be made perfect. And it doesn't mean that it's going to happen, it better happen. Expect means we long to be made perfect. We long for our will to line up with the will of God. We long to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Friends, that is the Wesleyan distinction, the Christian, the Christian United Methodist distinction that we share. And all that really means, saying, is that God is working in us. God is working in us. Say that with me, please. God is working in us. If we believe that God is working in us, that is then the sanctifying grace of God. But you know how it is. We've got this promise that we can be made perfect. And we got this promise that we can be made whole, but how do we respond sometimes? Well, let's think about Naaman. Naaman has the same promise that he can go and he can be made whole again. And you know the writer does this on purpose. It has to. Naaman, it doesn't just say Naaman showed up. It said Naaman and his horses and his chariots, right? In other words, do-do-do-do! Here I am. Y'all know me, don't y'all? Here comes Naaman. Oh, the letter's already there. You got the $80,000 gift. Now here comes the real gift. And he pulls up to Elisha's doorstep. Here I am. And what does Elijah do? He sends a messenger. Y'all feel that tension there? And the messenger tells Naaman what he should do. And how does Naaman respond? Oh, no, you didn't. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm capable of? Do you know what I've already done? And instead of following the instructions, he runs off in a fit. Isn't that just like us? We have that promise of God's wholeness, God's peace, but sometimes, man, we can be so arrogant. Now, maybe I'm just, you know, confessing a little myself, but that's okay. You can confess to yourself as well. We can just be so arrogant. God, don't you know how much I've done for you? You can't do this for me? God, don't you know my potential? Don't you know who I am? Or sometimes, instead of arrogance, maybe we just got too much other stuff going on. You know, preacher, I'd like to go to your little service and everything, but I just got too much other stuff in my schedule. Sorry. And then sometimes it's not that we're arrogant. It's not that we're busy. We're just stubborn. That we can't see God at work unless God's doing what we want God to do. That, friends, is being stubborn. And that keeps us from having the peace and the wholeness of God. Now, Naaman, again, by the power of a servant, another sermon for you, is persuaded to go and do what Elisha told him to do. So he goes and he washes himself in the river seven times as he was instructed, and the story says he was made whole. 
he was clean again. Friends, let me remind you that the sanctifying grace of God means that God is working in us so that we can be made clean again. But the tricky thing about that is that that work isn't always on the spot. It doesn't always happen in the blink of an eye. It doesn't happen that we wake up one day and all things are new for us. But friends, God is working in us. Amen. Part of the problem, I think, though, is... Well, let me explain to you this way. It, it was a no, I think it was a good effort. You know, somebody tried to do something, but I think... Somebody had in their mind not too many years ago, see, how can I think of a way to uh, make the Bible more relevant for somebody? And so they came up with this acronym for the B-I-B-L-E, right? You heard it? The Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. You ever heard that? It's a good shot, right? Because then it said, well, you know, the Bible is an instruction manual for life. And if you want to know about your life and how to live it, you, you read the instruction manual. And that sounds good on paper, doesn't it? It's a good theory. Until we think about <laughs> what do most of us do with instruction manuals? We do one of a couple things. Maybe we get that instruction manual, we, we look at it. Hey, what? Why can't they speak in plain English? What's with all these pictures? This doesn't tell me anything. They talk. Or, 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 maybe I'm another confession, right? In our family, right, there's one person who will take time to read the instructions, and then the rest of the family expects that person to tell them how to use the machine or how to play the game. And isn't that what a lot of churches do, too? Oh, I ain't got to worry about that Bible stuff preacher. He'll tell me what's up. Or she'll tell me what I need to know. Either way, the instruction manual... I think a better analogy, better than an instruction manual, is one of these. Yeah. Remote control. Yeah, I wanted you to be able to see it, that's all. Think about what you can do with this remote control. I can mute you. Or at least turn you down. This one, I can pause you or stop you altogether. I can change your channel. I can change your mode. I wonder maybe if the Bible, not just the Bible, these means of grace that Wesley talked about, reading the Bible, studying Scripture, praying, attending church, giving, all these kinds of things, acts of service, these things are way ways that God changes us. Ways that God connects with us to show us where it is that our will has yet to line up with God's will. Because some of us need to be muted. Or some of us need to change our area of focus. Some of us need our channel, channels changed as well. Friends, let me remind you that God can change us. God is working in us to bring change. 
so that we can be what the Apostle Paul calls the new creation. And I love what Paul said in Galatians, and I'm going to read it for you, because it's so powerful to me anyway. Paul's having this, he's finishing up his discussion with the Galatians who have struggled with this one group who has taught a different set of beliefs than what Paul is, has given to them before, and he's trying to convince them that you don't need what they're telling you you need. You need God's grace. You need to be converted to, to Christ, and that's it. All this other stuff doesn't matter. And at the very end of the letter, he says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which was part of the big debate they were having, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation I want you to think about that in your church life. Nothing else matters but the new creation God is working in us. Not small banners, big banners, not pews or chairs, not a type of music, not the song selections, not the version of the Bible that we read, not whether we intink the bread or we break the bread or we use the pretty little glasses. None of that kind of stuff matters. The only thing that matters, friends, is the new creation God is working in us. So my prayer would be for each of us that we could see those ways that God is working and has worked in us. And we can be thankful and we can look for more ways that God wants to align us with God's own will. Would you pray with me? Loving God, by your mercy, by your love, by who you are, you have called us to be your own. God, we pray that this day would be a new day in our hearts. That we would understand and hear your calling for us to be a new creation. And that as we finish our time here, as we walk out into the world that you give us again, we would indeed be new creations. In Jesus' name we pray.